the House come to order if members can take their seats. This budget is a huge job maker, and the number one solution to economic insecurity is a job. Hungry children can't learn, and it's our responsibility to try to help. Equality and opportunity. I believe most people are here because they want to do some good. Welcome to Capital Ideas. You already know that you've clicked on a new episode of the podcast in which members of the Majority Democratic Caucus in the Washington State House of Representatives stop by at the Capitol and talk about ideas. What you don't know yet is that this is a heck of an episode. If you stick around for the next 18 minutes or so, I promise you'll know more about some very significant things than you did going in. Today's Capital Ideas come from Representative Vandana Slatter. Vandana lives in Bellevue and is in her ninth year working for her neighbors in the 48th District. In Olympia, she chairs the House Committee on Post-Secondary Education and Workforce. She also sits on the Budget Writing Appropriations Committee and the Environment and Energy Panel. If that's not enough, Vandana co-chairs the Legislative Science, Technology, and Innovation Caucus. In her non-legislative life, she holds a doctorate in pharmacy from UW and is likely the only elected public servant anywhere who was captain of the varsity fencing team at the University of British Columbia. We recorded this conversation on Thursday, March 23, 2023, and here it is. Welcome to Capital Ideas, Representative Vandana Slatter from the 48th Legislative District over on the east side of Lake Washington. It's great to have you back here on Capital Ideas. Great. Thank you. It's so good to be here with you, Dan. Thank you so much for inviting me. You've been busy this year. You have got a whole lot on your plate. First of all, you're the chair of the Post-Secondary Education and Workforce Committee. Workforce being one of the priorities that was written in capital letters and neon color when the legislature started this year. What's the big picture on the workforce shortage? Thank you. Thank you for asking that question. It is very important. You know, over the last couple of years, we passed critical legislation to establish and expand something we call the Washington College Grant. I wish more people knew about it. It's free college financial aid so that more people can get post-secondary credentials into meaningful work, good wages, and self-sufficiency through their life. So this is trades as well as getting a diploma or a degree. Absolutely. We we changed the name of the committee to post-secondary education in order to accommodate that. We have 34 community technical colleges, six regional universities, and two comprehensive universities in our state. So there's a lot of opportunity, but we also have, I think, over 20,000 apprentices that that are actually uh, working. And we want people to be able to understand all of those pathways, but also get access to those pathways. And what we're finding is there are a lot of people who don't see themselves in um, higher education, post-secondary education, or even in trades or apprenticeship types of roles. So how do we help them see those pathways and how do we see them in our state as well? Because so many are rural or underrepresented or marginalized or they're first generation students. Maybe their parents never went to anything beyond high school. And so we would like to be able to give everyone in our state an opportunity. And I personally believe that that is where our workforce will come from. You know, we have a very stable sort of educated population. And I think those who have never seen themselves in certain roles play a role in our economy. If a person doesn't want to go to college or learn a trade in a community or technical college or trade school, 
or do an apprenticeship, what is left for that person? Is that really service jobs, maybe uh, being a clerk or working at a, in a yeah. fast food restaurant? Not that there's anything at all wrong no. with those, but it seems like a person would be limiting themselves quite a bit. hundred percent. A long time ago, or maybe, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago, maybe, if you were a barista and a bartender and you're living together, you could maybe even afford a house, a car, and a kid. Nowadays, wages are not keeping up with what our needs are to be able just to live sort of that a simple, sustainable life of self-sufficiency. What happens is maybe after high school, some people don't see those pathways or that accessibility because they have to work two jobs to stay in university just to have housing or they don't have transportation and they don't have parents or family who can help them understand how to fill out really complicated forms for financial aid or for applications to colleges. And they're not prepared to be able to take on some of those tasks that get them into different fields or professions, or they haven't heard about apprenticeships. So we have a lot of work to do for students who are in high school to give them pathways. And we're doing that type of work with dual credit programs. We are also trying to have people more aware of the financial aid that's available to them. Because in Washington State, we have one of the most generous and equitable financial aid programs in the nation. You can go to college for free if you are low income. And by low income, I mean 60% of medium family income, which is around, I think, fifty-seven dollars to $60,000 a year for a family of four. So if you are a low-income person, we have free college for you and our community technical colleges as well as the University of Washington type of schools and universities. And a lot of people don't know about that. I think that you're right that if you don't see yourself sort of moving on to a post-secondary credential, you don't even know that that exists, then you're going to work in jobs that are probably what we would call the gig economy or retail sector. And like you said, we absolutely need people who can do those jobs, but we also need those jobs to have a living wage. And many times people work multiple jobs because they have to do that. And that's not a society or an economy that's sustainable. And I would just say that we have seen that there are critical sectors of the labor market right now, like healthcare, behavioral health, which do need higher education, post-secondary graduate level even degrees, trades and apprenticeships, to your point and other highly skilled vocations that have been negatively impacted by closures over the pandemic, by burnout, and by mass retirements, and in some cases by people working remotely. So we're looking to address some of that. As our economy recovers from the pandemic, how do we build a pipeline of people? How do we create what we call a ready force that's ready to sort of step in, expand that force to do some of the jobs like childcare workers, behavioral health workers, nurses? We're seeing such a shortage of nurses, for example. Dental hygienists, dental therapists, you know, that's something that we've been looking at this year in a bill. It tends to be a little controversial, but absolutely, we need teachers. Those are the types of roles that we have to relook and transform a little bit so that we can actually have a sustainable economy. I want to segue here just a little bit and take a different angle. You've mentioned the word sustainable three or four times <laughs> in the last five minutes. I have. Um, you have something that you are sponsoring to establish something called the Climate Corps. Sustainable is a word that we usually hear in, in connection with either the state budget or climate. And so tell me about the Climate Corps. That's a, a real interesting new idea. I'm really excited about that, Bill. Thank you for mentioning. Yeah, for sustainable in this previous conversation, I would say that we want to make sure that people stay in their professions, that we can retain them, and that people who might be retired, that they have opportunities so that their jobs and their, their wages can be sustainable. 
For this particular issue, yes. Uh, in terms of climate action and sustainability for our planet and for future generations, I think it's important that we actually deliver on some really big legislation and policy that we've done in the past few years. We passed a cap-and-trade policy, the Climate Commitment Act. We have passed CETA, which is the Clean Energy Transformation Act that helps us get to a net neutral by, I believe, 2040. We passed greenhouse gas emissions reductions. We've also uh, passed a big transportation uh, package to help us reduce our reliance on fossil fuels. And we passed the clean fuel standard. Who is going to build all this electrification infrastructure, the solar panels, how are we going to deliver all of these incredible policy-based items to create this climate future? Essentially, what we need is a green economy, a clean energy economy. And if we're going to move that way, we have to start thinking about the workforce ahead of time. Young people, people who might want to reskill, veterans, there are so many places that we could plug people into a clean energy or green economy. And that's what the Climate Corps is about. It's kind of got two spaces to it. One is that we build a climate core, kind of like based on the AmeriCorps model, the Peace Corps type of idea, where we have climate conservation cores around the state, and they can plug into a framework where we continue having them do that work, but we also uh, have them be available in rural areas and communities that are overburdened and impacted by climate impacts and climate change. And also people who might become service members in these climate cores would also get some uh, exposure to future careers, HVAC, electrician, microgrid technician, somebody who might be working on electric vehicles, the service member could be exposed to that. And that's kind of one one place we're going. So a climate core network for civilians to come in and do climate action in different communities. AmeriCorps is the federal service corps, and we will draw down federal dollars for this. But a lot of times the federal dollars don't always fund a higher wage or a living wage. So we're going to subsidize that so we can bring more people into this type of service membership that typically wouldn't see themselves here, and also maybe provide some wraparound transportation, childcare. The second part of this is labor and business, a task force advisory group, because what will happen to people who have to transition from fossil fuel-based jobs into a clean energy economy? How do we resolve that? If you're a pipe fitter that you know um, is doing that work for natural gas and we move out of natural gas, what can we do to help transition these incredibly important workers in our economy. And so having labor and business sit at a table to really work through that and see what that transition could look like is what the second part of the bill is. So I'm really excited because I think it is not just responsive to a need in workforce, but it is proactive. You may be way ahead of me on this. I haven't read the bill, but has there been consideration here to focus a lot of the recruitment efforts for Climate Corps on underserved communities? A lot of these communities actually bear more of the brunt of climate change than, you know, downtown Seattle, for example. Is that part of this bill? And Dan, I would have to say that it's almost as if you did read the bill. I, I love that question. Thank you for that. Uh, it, absolutely. It is a place where we want to highlight and we want to support and almost prioritize the overburdened communities. Those communities aren't always aware in all cases that they have been affected by climate change, first of all. They've never been maybe part of that conversation. 
but they are. We're seeing rising water levels and coastlines. We're seeing increased wildfires. We're seeing loss of species all over the state and the world, essentially, that is anticipated. And these are species that are part of people's daily subsistence and life and are part of our food cycle. And so bringing in voices and service members from those communities that are impacted can be really profound, I think not only for them, but for our state. And I believe that if we haven't done a good job of creating equity in our workplaces and our workspaces, wouldn't it be wonderful to begin that way on what we perceive as being a new economy and a new direction for our society? I want to move now to a different topic, one that that uh, has been a pretty high-profile bill here, which has to do with the privacy of consumer health data. Um, more and more, this is a concern because of because of apps that your doctor's office may make you get onto before you can come in and, and find out why you have a fever or anything else, and especially with reproductive and gender-based care, this has become key. So tell me about the My Health, My Data bill. Thank you so much for bringing that up, and I'm very proud of this bill. Yes, when you go to the doctor's office, a lot of times you're asked to fill out a consent form for what we call HIPAA, which is the federal privacy protection of your health data, so that if your information is shared, you've given consent, you know, so that doctors can share with other physicians or, you know, lab work and that sort of thing. And most of us are pretty familiar with that. But when you go on to a Fitbit or a Peloton or when you go onto an app, website, or even if you do a search online and you put in anything about your health, it is not protected by any of these privacy measures. And it's very deeply personal information. And what happens is the tech world and companies will collect that information and it can be shared or sold. Last year, before the Dobbs decision, the Supreme Court Dobbs decision, I learned that anyone could go to a data broker and buy a woman's search history for $160. So in Washington state, we're very lucky because we have laws that allow for abortion and protect a woman's right to choose and access to reproductive health care and for gender affirming care. But in other states, uh, following the Dobbs decision, there was a reversal and they were able to ban abortion procedures and other reproductive health types of access and, and in some cases now gender-affirming care. But if they were to come to Washington State, for example, to seek that care and then they searched online, their data could be sold or shared. And for some of these states that are basically having civil actions against women or their providers or even criminally prosecuting them, that is a significant harm. Not only are they being denied their health care, and in some cases, life-saving care. I mean, you know, I've had people reach out to me and say, hey, I have a friend in Texas who had a miscarriage, and she may not be able to get a DNC, which is basically a procedure to clean out remaining material after a miscarriage and prevent sepsis. And that's considered an abortion under some of the designations. So it's not even just abortion care, but it's, it's reproductive health care and choices that women make. And so this bill would say that if you're in Washington State and Washington residents, or if you come to visit here and to get reproductive health care, we are going to require that companies, if they're going to share your information or collect it, that they inform you of that and get your consent and that you are aware of what is happening to your data. And it's the, deeply, the most deeply personal health data 
Now, some companies worry about this bill because uh, we have a very broad definition of health data. We don't think it's that broad, but it is broader than what you normally hear. And that's because we've heard other examples of where uh, companies have collected, for example, whether a woman buys non-scented, they, they had so many data points from people's health information, and they could actually predict when a woman was pregnant because of what she purchased. So if she purchased unscented lotion and vitamins and maybe a blue blanket, then all of a sudden that she would go into this category. And in some cases, then there's a very famous example, um, Target and a New York Times article, where uh, they sent coupons to uh, to people's homes for baby diapers and cribs and things like that because they could predict that this person was likely in her first trimester of pregnancy. And this, so, is, this is, I'm sorry to interrupt, but this is also the point at which anti-choice organizations could buy Correct. This information and start harassing this woman. There's a crisis pregnancy centers are uh, centers that make it sound like they do health care where they really don't. Now, let's say a woman was searching online for a place to get reproductive health care, went to a crisis pregnancy center. They uh, can collect that information and they can also share it with somebody who might seek to uh, hunt her down and target her. Also, there's something called geofencing. And that's kind of a virtual boundary so that when you cross it and your cell phone crosses it, you can get text delivered to you. And sometimes that's really helpful, right? Like when you're in a, a grocery store and you're just like, what aisle is rice and beans on? Or if you're just walking into a health clinic and someone says the health clinic is on the third floor, that could be your, on, on your text. Well, this can also be used to cause you know harm and to bombard you with messages that are anti anti-choice or to tell you, you know, not to seek certain care, that sort of thing. And we want women to have the full ability to make their own personal and private health decisions. And I am talking about women more right now because with the Dobbs decision, I think there's a sense of urgency. This bill will cover all healthcare data, including your mental health data, whether you want, you want to share your, your weight or your heart rate. So it isn't just for women. So why am I talking about that? I am because of what you're referring to, which is the urgency of this issue having been decided through the Supreme Court decision that the idea of privacy is overturned. We want to protect privacy in Washington State. Is it, in, it is in our Constitution. This is the part that I really don't like about doing this podcast, but I know that you have an appointment in three minutes somewhere else on this campus. Uh, Vandana, it's been, as usual, wonderful to talk to you. I wish we had more time, and I wish you very much luck on these bills and the other ones that you're sponsoring. Thank you so much, Dan. We have been talking with Representative Vandana Slatter from the 48th Legislative District, Chair of the Post-Secondary Education and Workforce Committee here at the House of Representatives in Olympia, Washington. This has been great, and thank you for coming on Capital Ideas, and you better get moving. Thank you, Dan. It was my pleasure, and off I go. Well, I think that lived up to the hype. I'll say it again. You've been listening to Representative Vandana Slatter, and you can keep up with her bills and those of every member of the House Democratic Caucus by visiting housedemocrats.wa.gov. You can also subscribe to Capital Ideas by hitting the media button on that homepage, or you can do so on whatever podcast aggregator you're partial to. 
I hope you will, because this is your state government, and what goes on here matters. I'm Dan Frizzell for the Washington State House Democrats, putting people first since 1889. Thank you for your time.